Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. Today is actually Wednesday the 6th of April because things got switched around in my week, but we're here and that's what matters on this week's episode. Well, first off, first off, it is Wednesday the 6th, but I didn't intend to record yesterday on the 5th, which was First Contact Day. So happy First Contact Day, Trekkies and Star Trek fans. On First Contact Day, if you are unaware, Star Trek fans and the like celebrate April 25th, 2063, when Zephyrim Karkaran will launch Earth's first warp-capable rocket, and when humans will first meet Vulcans in the movies. Also, happy April, because it is April in our first episode of the month. We have a lot of really great stuff on this episode, including the first episode breakdown of Moon Knight. We have lots to talk about on comic references, theories, deities in ancient Egyptian mythology, um, obviously different things that they're talking about based on comic stories, and then just, of course, a regular rundown of the episode. So we'll talk about that a little bit further along. Um, but we're going to start with the news as usual, which does include updates or news rather on Doctor Who, Star Trek, Strange New Worlds, The Batman, uh, Marvel's Demon Days, or I should say Peach Romoko's Demon Days, The Crow Movie, which I'm going to groan my way through that one, Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, Blade's Daughter, Daredevil, and of course, as it comes closer, we'll always have news, I feels like, Multiverse of Madness. After we get through that, we do have some really excellent pictures this week and I, I have a really nice thing explaining Sean Gordon Murphy's Murphyverse which takes place in um, Batman Beyond the White Knight number one which came out last week. We also talk about Immortal X-Men number one which I have a good deal of information on uh, the Krakoan Council, if you are at all curious about what any of that stuff is. Um, I did also read the Sensational Wonder Woman special, Captain Marvel 37, um, Step by Bloody Step number two, and a small handful of others that I have a lot less to talk about. But after that, we will get into the picks, or sorry, the polls for this week. Uh, DC stuff did come out yesterday on the 5th. Everything else is out today on the 6th. Again, I apologize if you do take stock in my poll list and are missing it. Um, I, I have a good number of number ones and in indie stuff this week, so that's really exciting. The only DC thing that I had besides uh, Tom King's Killing Time was Wonder Woman Historia, which I don't even need to tell you about. Just go pick it up and you will not regret it. After that will be the Moon Knight conversation. And then I actually went through the three recent episodes of Young Justice. Those are episodes 14, 15, and 16, which are premiering again on Thursdays on HBO Max. So if you would like to hear about what goes on in those episodes, I have a lot less um, information on comic references and things like that for Young Justice because it is very much different than the comic universe. Um... But in any case, I do have uh, the Young Justice episodes to discuss today as well. Before we get started, as usual, I have a few things to mention on social media. First off, being our private Discord. The Yancey Street Discord is by invite only. Uh, my husband and I are the mods, as we call ourselves, the new gods in the Discord. Um, you can message me to get involved. It is, like I said, a private Discord, so it is just going to be people who, um, you know, can be checked out and make sure that they really are into this kind of stuff and about this life. And you know, even the smallest bit. So that's a place that can be for discussion for all things nerdy with a general chat, event channel, and all the other general categories. 
You can find me on Instagram at Anna with the Comics or on Twitter at Savage She Geek. My website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. Uh, you gotta have the Weebly in there still, unfortunately. And that site does have highlights on the front page about Madeline Pryor, aka the Goblin Queen, Ileana Rasputin, aka Magic, and Clea, aka the new Sorcerer Supreme of Earth in Marvel Comics. between the comics and the movies, all of those characters are going to be very relevant here coming up soon or already are. So go ahead and check that out if you are curious about those three characters. Uh, I have a lot of other stuff on my site, reading orders of different characters and whatnot that you can check out. Um, Different stuff that I wrote before I started the podcast. um, And as well as that pod notes for reading the podcast instead of listening to it. And of course, for those who are hearing impaired, if they would like to keep up with the events of the podcast as well. Uh, Last, you can find links to anywhere that you can listen to this podcast, which is most podcast hosting apps including YouTube, where I also post action figure review videos. My most recent uploads went over the entire the entirety of our action figure collection that I have with my husband, which was a 40-minute long video, and then I went back and added an extra 15 minutes of extras in a second video that I forgot to add uh, various things in throughout the house. Uh, so that is there as an addendum that I posted after the fact. I also posted an unboxing review of the animation color Sailor Pluto figure from SH Figure Arts, who I adore, but you will want to see the details on that before you decide to buy her for yourself. I do have a podcast Patreon. It is there under Sensational She Geek, and it is set up for donations to support the podcast. I do have a day job that I work, and that has something to do, a little to do with the rescheduling of the podcast this week, as my day job has kind of uh, been a little bit lacking, we'll say that, um, of late. So if you would like to donate to the podcast, I would appreciate that a lot. Um, and that's not something that I will ever track you down and ask why you didn't donate again or why you unsubscribed or anything like that. I don't have the energy to do that anyway. Um, and frankly, if it was me, that would make me so uncomfortable. How could I even imagine doing that to somebody else? Um, but you can also find my Kofi Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal all linked there on my link tree. And all that should appear at the bottom of each episode's description, among whatever other fun things I put there. Uh, last, I do have a Redbubble shop. It is just She Geek Shop, and I have a fun little sticker there for sale, which says, A woman's place is in the comic shop. It's a fun play on, you know, less fun sayings. Um, and it is on Redbubble, so you can get that as a shirt, a mug, a print, a laptop case, probably, you know, whatever else you really want. Um, and there's a few other sci- fun designs like that. Like, I know somebody bought my uh, Hulk's Built Tough Ford play thing um, as, as a play on Ford, Ford Built Tough. Um, is it Ford? Yeah, I think it's Ford, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, that's all on Redbubble under She Geek Shop. Before we really get into the news here, I kind of wanted to give a personal <laughs> update on my personal watch list because I've been watching some stuff online that's not necessarily things you would put into this podcast, but it's fun stuff, so I kind of want to mention it. First off, um, I had mentioned this show before. (laughs) Um, I really enjoy it for a couple of reasons, but it's coming out with season three. It is Motherland Fort Salem. I have watched it on Hulu in the past, Um, but it is coming out with season three at some point. That is just a good news moment. Uh, Also, good news, if you are a fan of Bob's Burgers, which I understand a lot of people aren't because of the animation style, which... I enjoy because I feel like I look like them in real life. Um, That movie, Bob's Burgers, they're having a movie that's going to come out officially May 27th. 
two other shows that I watched this week that uh, had me rolling on the floor dying um, of laughter was, first one was The Outlaws, which is on Amazon Prime, that has Christopher Walken and a bunch of other names, uh, well, faces that you might recognize. Uh, tall string bean English comedian guy with the glasses, whose name I can never remember is in it as well, and he is exactly that in the show. Tall string bean guy. Makes a lot of jokes about it too, which is always nice. Um, really funny show. Actually, it's it's about a group of people in England who do have to do 150 hours of community service. Uh, sounds a bit at that point like um, misfits, but it's not it's not like misfits because then ends up being this whole other plot. There's no supernatural aspect to it either, which misfits also good show, uh, not appropriate for children. Uh, the last show that I watched this week, <laughs> again my work schedule has kind of been small, unfortunately, but uh, Chad. The show Chad on HBO Max is where I watched it. I believe it was from TBS originally, um, but is now the first season is up on HBO Max. 10 out of 10, complete, just pure comedy. Um, Nassim Pedrad is the main character, and if you're aware of her, she is a absolutely stunning actress uh, and comedian. She's been on, I think she actually kind of got more or less her start on SNL. I could be wrong with that. But what makes this show so funny? She is playing... This adult woman is playing a 14-year-old boy. Um, specifically Persian boy. I imagine that's somewhat the same of her own heritage. But she is playing this 14-year-old Persian boy going into his freshman year of high school. I have not laughed that hard in such a long time. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure what it was about that combination of things. But it just got me rolling on the floor dying of laughter. Um, and I recommend that to everyone. <laughs> Getting into the news proper, we're going to start off with news about Doctor Who. I think I've mentioned the Jodie Whittaker Doctor Who that I did actually enjoy that. Um, and all of the bad things, literally every single one of the bad things that I specifically heard repeated by multiple people, not a single one of them ended up to be true. So I wasn't really sure what that's about. Anyway, liked the Jodie Whittaker Doctor Who. And of late, the BBC has announced, British Broadcasting Corporation has announced that The Legend of the Sea Devils, their spring special, is going to be airing on BBC One and BBC iPlayer on Sunday, the 17th of April, aka Easter Sunday. That is a week from this coming Sunday, which is pretty exciting. Uh, it is also the second to last episode with Jodie Whittaker. Um, this is also the, it's going to be talking, of course, Legend of the Sea Devils. It's going to be talking a lot about pirates. Um, the Doctor is going to be using pirate territory for the first time since Curse of the Black Spot, which was with Matt Smith in 2010. If you remember, uh, there was the Doctor crashing paths with the English pirate. Um, and then we, now we have the Legend of the Sea Devils, which is going to be centering on a real life historical figure as well. Um, they're going to be landing, they being the Doctor, Yaz, and Dan, who I'm glad are back, are going to be uh, heading to a small coastal village in 19th century China, where they're going to encounter the fearsome pirate queen, Madame Ching, who is a real-life figure. According to legend, Ching rose from the prostitute to commander of a vast force of over 300 ships and leader of 180,000 pirates. So that's a really exciting thing. Also very exciting, the Sea Devils return. The Sea Devils were first seen in the 1972 Doctor Who serial show. There, the aquatic monsters teamed up with the Master and clashed with John Pertwee's Doctor Who. Or Doctor, I should say. Their second and most recent appearance was 
in Warriors of the Deep, which was a 1984 episode of Doctor Who featuring Peter Davidson. The Sea Devils themselves are part of the reptilian species, which were the original intelligent life on Earth long before man evolved. They put themselves into suspended animation deep below the ground to hide from a huge asteroid that was going to collide with Earth, but the impact never happened. The body being caught in Earth's gravitational pull and becoming our moon. You know what? This sounds a lot like the creatures below Earth. And just like that, a quick Google in the background, and we find out that the Silurians, who I was just referred to as the creatures below Earth, which is from multiple episodes, but they have this one really great episode, which I believe was also with Matt Smith and Karen Gillian, or Gillen, um, where they have the, the green reptile people, right? The Silurians, who are the reptiles of Earth below the surface. And I was just reading that description of the episode, well, not of the episode, but the sea devils. And so I brought up this page, tardis.fandom.com. Of course that exists. Um, looking through the Silurians page, they are in fact affiliated with the sea devils. There might be more mythology to that if you were aware of that let me know because i'm curious now oh look this one says there's a silurian sea devil hybrid interesting so they are related that does answer that question a bit um it looks like there's been a lot of discussion of them the silurians and possibly the sea devils um in comics doctor who comics which i myself have never um, branched into because it just seems like a lot <laughs> but anyway getting back to what we were talking about the sea devils um, uh, the sea devils alarm clock was never triggered and they continue sleeping very similar to the silurians who also sleep below the earth um, the cast you have madame ching being played by crystal yu you have tv newcomer marlo chan reeves as ying ki or possibly kai and Arthur Lee, who was in a thing called Strike Back, as Ji Hun. You have a Chinese director, Hao Lu Wang, who takes on her first Doctor Who directing role with this special, and her website describes the special, or rather her specializing in, quote, emotional fantasy. If you are looking forward to seeing Jodie Whittaker, her next project for Doctor Who and last project is going to be the Autumn 22 Centenary, Centenary, which is a word I had to Google yesterday. Um, England has a certain way of speaking, don't they? Um, this is what we would call a centennial special, but for some reason they're all calling it the centenary. Um, good for them, I guess, which is part of the BBC celebration of 100 years of broadcasting, and it will be a part of an even bigger event. Details on that I do not have, but, um... It sounds interesting. It sounds complicated a little bit. But what we have on that, all showrunner Chris, uh, Chris something or other, I'm sure he has a last name. All the showrunner named Chris has to say on the episode is, it's great that the climax of the 13th Doctor story will be at the hearts of the BBC centenary celebrations. Okay. Uh, BBC director of drama Piers Wegner promises, quote, Jodie's final adventure to mark the BBC's centenary in 2022 is set to be a Doctor Who special to remember. Now, I've already mentioned Star Trek once and the fact that yesterday was First Contact Day, um, but I'm mentioning it again because Strange New Worlds is a thing that I only recently realized is actually happening, um, and so I figured I would discuss it. And now that it has a release date and blah blah blah, we got a good deal of information on it, we have a number of trailers, let's discuss this.
First off, I feel like I have to mention I am a fan of Star Trek, but I don't fall into what you might consider the Trekkie label. Um, I feel like Trekkies are people who get really deep into the lore and kind of like I am with comics could probably list off all the details about some storyline or another uh, really, really intensely. I'm not that into Star Trek. I love Star Trek, I think. Um, I think the best way to say that is I love Star Trek as the idea of what it is. Yes, I enjoyed the original series as the cheesiness that it was. Yes, I adore still, um, uh, my cat just tried to interrupt. Uh, I adore the next generation, um, as it came out around the time where I was very young, you know, um, and was having repeats on TV when my childhood, you know, and, um, but when I when I say you know I love the idea of Star Trek and I even like I even like the movies all the movies even the new ones I'm sorry I liked them, <laughs> not sorry they're fun, um, even if beyond that um, I'm gonna link it in my in the description thingy down in the in the in the below area of this podcast um, but the, it was it was something that I, I I literally cannot read this story without tearing up it's kind of pathetic. Um, but it's the story of Gene Roddenberry becoming a writer, beco- becoming the creator of Star Trek, basically. Um, and it's by, of all creators, The Oatmeal, <laughs> which is more or less a comedy comic, uh, online comic kind of thing. Um, this, this, I'll link it below. It's called just plain or something like that. But, um, it's telling the story of how Gene Roddenberry was a co-pilot. Uh, the plane was going down and pretty much solely due to his being able to handle the situation he was able to find help uh they landed the plane safely in the middle of nowhere they went off in different directions looking for help and he was the one who was able to find help and bring it back and save everyone on the plane um and it goes more into um uh why why he what he felt and what his experiences were and it's all from uh stuff that he himself gene roddenberry had said and uh the point being gene roddenberry went through those experiences and decided that he wanted to change his life and um started star trek and that is the story that he came up with to give people hope and um i am not tearing up that's you <clears throat> anyway um my favorite star trek episode of all time is the trouble with tribbles I feel like that's probably several people's favorite um, because it's awesome. But let's talk Strange New Worlds. Um, Strange New Worlds is coming on Thursday, May 5th, which is just in a little over a month here. Oh gosh, less than a month. It's the 6th. Imagine that. Uh, It's going to be on Paramount Plus and it is going to be 10 episodes that will be premiering each Thursday after that. The show is going to be following Captain Pike and his crew, which is prior to Captain Kirk's appearance in the Star Trek series. If you remember, the first episode of the original series is actually Captain Pike. So we're, we're seeing everything previous to that or prior to that, prior to that. Um, so that's really fun. Uh, it promises, quote, a fresh start for Star Trek. And it also says, quote, strange new worlds seem to be the most fan service oriented Star Trek project in a very long time. Now, let's talk about fan service for just a moment here. Um, I believe I have mentioned this before, but fan service is something that obviously can uh, be brought into things like this uh, a lot or a little um, being 
fan service being, oh, the fans want to see this thing from the original series, which was like, they want to see a Tribble. Okay, let's put a Tribble in Strange New Worlds because the fans will get a kick out of that. That's fan service. Um, and the one thing that whenever somebody mentions fan service that I always feel like I have to also mention is Star Trek, Star Wars, you know, Harry Potter to an extent, all of those projects that they continue having going, you know, we have uh, whatever season of Mando that we're on now, three, right? We have all those other Star Wars shows that are going to be coming. We have all the Marvel stuff that's coming and the DC stuff that is whatever's happening over there and all the Star Trek stuff that's happening and Picard and Strange New Worlds and the animated one that I liked. And um, my point is all of those even existing is fan service. I just like to remind everybody that fan service does not does not connote does not connote does not mean bad um i feel like that's a lot of people feel that way like oh it's too much fan service you should have thought something original well them continuing to make star trek projects at all is fan service um so i just like to remind everybody that that fan service is not a bad thing and it actually tends to be the things that makes these things go well how many times can I say thing in a sentence? Let's talk the cast of Strange New Worlds. We have young Spock, who's being played by Ethan Pecht. Anson Mount is playing Captain Christopher Pike. Rebecca Romijin, uh, Romijn as Una Chin Riley, a.k.a. Pike's number one. Jess Bush is playing Nurse Christine Chapel, another familiar face. Celia Rose Gooding is Neota Uhura. Yay! Christina Chong Leanne is playing... Oh no, sorry, Christina, Christina Chong is playing Leanne Nunyan Singh. Melissa Navia is playing Lieutenant Erica Ortegas. Babs Olasan Malkun, oh boy, Olasan Malkun, something like that, I apologize, um, is Dr. Mbenga, and Bruce Horak is Hemmer. We also have Paul Wesley playing James T. Kirk, apparently, but he will not be appearing until the second season, which I myself did not know that they already had planned. They must really have a lot of, uh, you know, stake in this show succeeding if they already, A, have Kirk cast, and B, have him cast for the second season. So they must have good things planned for this. Um, we do know, of course, Spock, Pike, Chapel, Uhura, and Dr. Mbenga from other, uh, well, from the original series specifically. Uh, Dr. Mbenga was played by Booker Bradshaw in two episodes of the original series. Ortega's Hemmer and Nunian Singh will appear as new characters. However, co-showrunner Akiva Goldsman has confirmed that the Nunian Singh character is, quote, related to the infamous Trek villain Khan Nunyan Singh, who is, of course, Khan from The Wrath of Khan. So exciting stuff there. I will certainly be checking out Strange New Worlds if, you know, for curiosity's sake than nothing else. Um, I, I would love to have a new Star Trek project that I kind of fall into and grow a huge heart over. Um, maybe this will be it. Maybe this will be it. I believe, are they making a Ford Star Trek movie? I think I heard they were, so maybe hopefully in the future we'll get more news about that too. For the Batman, um, this is of course Matt Reeves, the Batman, and the news that we have for this is that it is coming to HBO Max in 10 days. 
April 16th. Oh my, by the time that you're listening to this, it may already be out. Uh, but April 16th is the date that we are, oh, sorry, 19th. I tested that wrong. My bad. April 19th is the day where the Batman, uh, Matt Reeves, the Batman is going to be coming to HBO Max. However, it is still currently in theaters. Um, and I would recommend that as long as you feel safe and can find safe ways of doing so, definitely see it in theaters while you still can. And as long as it's financially viable to you. Otherwise, it is going to be on HBO Max April 16th, and I'm sure they have all kinds of free trials to let you see that without having to pay for it. Shit, I said 16th again. It's coming the 19th, April 19th. My bad. Next up in the news, we're talking Peach Momoko's Demon Days. Uh, we had the last issue of Demon Days, the five issues, as they had been announced previously, and that was Demon Days of X-Men, Mariko, Cursed Web, Rising Storm, and coming out last week, Blood Feud. So that's a very, um, it was a, it was a very good series. It, it is Peach from Moko, who is, of course, a Jap traditional Japanese artist. Um, she was doing a retelling of the Marvel Universe in a Japanese folklore-inspired style. Um, some really, really cool elements, some great creativity, some fantastic designs. Um, it was, it was really nice to see that Pichamoko had this beautiful brainchild and they actually let her go through with it and put it on paper and do it the way that she wanted to, as far as we can tell. Um, but to add to that, after Blood Feud is over, we discover that she's actually going to be getting another series, another Demon Day series. They're going to let her continue doing this, um... And I think that is only a good thing. I, I only great stuff for Pichamoko. She is fantastic. There is a good reason that she is um, as popular and as easy to find of an artist as she is. And I will be talking. I didn't mention it in the in the episode preview, but I will be talking about Demon Days a little bit. Uh, the Blood Feud issue when we get to comic book picks. Um, but those are the issues of this first series that she did. The next series that she's going to be doing, she's going to be tackling Civil War. We, of course, know Civil War as the big battle of the superheroes, where the community gets basically split in half over the superhero registration stuff, and Tony Stark is pro-registration, and Steve Rogers is against registration, and it ends up being this big split where half the half the superheroes are trying to arrest the other half, and that half is trying to just make them see the light of day. You know, classic stuff. Um, but Civil War is going to be coming from Peach Moko in a four-issue limited series featuring Moko's redesigned and reimagined versions of Captain America, Black Panther, and more very well-known Marvel heroes. It is described in the announcement as, quote, a winged individual in a falcon mask, a mysterious panther person, and a red snake-like monster with a deadly appetite. And if you go and you check out the cover to um, the first issue, which is going to be the Iron Samurai number one, you can check that out online right now and see a little preview of the different character designs that she's put in there. One that I would definitely urge you to check out is her Spider-Man design. Um... Definitely, she she she's got that little bit of uh, creepiness to her art style. You know, she puts the eyeballs and stuff as often as she can, which I love. Um, and she has like brains and stuff. She she has a little bit of like gore to her art style. Um, and she slips in she slips it into her mainstream stuff when she can. And we got a little bit of that in the Blood Feud issue. But um, you can be sure that with the with a couple of the designs that you can see on that first issue of the cover of Iron Samurai, she's going to get a lot of room to do her weird creepiness, and I'm very excited for that. 
From Momoko herself, she says, It is an honor to tell my version of the classic Marvel Comics event, Civil War. My story and characters are already so different from the main Marvel Universe designs, and this series will give fans a chance to see even more fun layers and different takes on Marvel storytelling. Yes, I am so excited for this. This was excellent news. It's going to feed me through... I don't know how often these issues are coming, but this is going to start July 13th is when the Iron Samurai number one goes on sale. I imagine it's probably going to be three months between issues as it was with her first even day series, but whether or not it is, this is excellent stuff to look forward to and will feed our lovely anime loving hearts for just a little while longer. The synopsis of this, um, uh, what are we calling it? We're calling it Civil War, I guess. For, for Pichimoku, it says, Pichimoku returns with another saga filled with wondrous creatures, sentient samurai armor, a winged individual in a falcon mask, a mysterious panther person, and a red snake-like monster with a deadly appetite. When Mariko Yoshida finds herself in the middle of a war between these creatures, will she be forced to choose a side? Mariko Yoshida being a character from vaguely X-Men comics, who Pichimoku made into the main character of her first Demon Day series, um, which was wildly satisfying. <laughs> um, again, I will talk more about Blood Feud when we get down to the comic book picks of the week, but uh, super duper thrilled that Peach Romoko's Demon Days is getting more, and I am just unspeakably excited about how um, her designs and her character interpretations are going to turn out. That is just going to be so stellar. Now we're going to cringe a bit and talk about The Crow. Not because The Crow is cringy, but because the news is a bit cringy in my opinion. Um, now the crow, if you are unaware, um, is based off a comic. Let's 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 start this over. Uh, the crow came out as a film in 1994. It's an action fantasy movie, as they call it, I guess. is rated R, um, and it starred Brandon Lee as Eric Draven, um, and had a, a couple other characters from the comics. But um, it is based off a comic, in case you were not aware. Uh, the Crow is based off of a comic by J. O'Barr, it's James O'Barr, which was released in February of 1984 as a four-issue miniseries. Um, in 1994, they released The Crow movie. However, it was not without its own tragedies. Uh, Brandon Lee, who is the only son of the legendary Bruce Lee, was unfortunately killed on set by a faulty prop gun. Um, I, I imagine towards the end of their filming. Um, and that, that is, that is the tragedy of The Crow. They did make four of The Crow movies, uh, the first one being the only one worth watching, the other three being, um, takes on different versions of The Crow. It was not Eric Draven's stories, they were stories of different people who, um, were killed wrongfully and come back and take their revenge on those who wronged them in life. That's what the whole story of The Crow is. Um, and so the three movies they made after Brandon Lee's death were not anything to do with that original J.O. Barr comic, um, or the, that original The Crow character who was himself Eric Draven. And they, 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 do, they do suck a lot. They're not very good movies, but I wildly respect them for not trying to redo the Eric Draven thing. However, they've been trying to redo the Eric Draven thing of late. We had rumors about uh, Jason Momoa and Oscar Isaac for a while, and now they have landed. They have cast Eric Draven as Bill Skarsgård. <laughs> to further add to the news, FKA Twigs, who is apparently a British pop star, has also been cast in the movie, 
playing the girlfriend Sarah, who does traditionally die in the comic and the original movie, but sources say that this reimagining will have the part reconceived into a co-lead. Articles that I read said they're not sure if that's going to mean that she's going to be a crow character as well. Completely not what the comic was about. Completely not what the original movie was about. What I'm hearing here is they are making this into a weird romantic heartthrob movie, which 1000% is not what The Crow is supposed to be about. It feels very wrong to be doing this remake of the original at all, um, but specifically casting somebody like Bill Skarsgård and now FKA Twigs, it feels like a massive cash grab. That's all this is. It's just a cash grab. Like I said, there are other Crow movies, but none of them follow the Eric Draven story specifically. Redoing Draven's story specifically not only feels severely unneeded, but they've cast a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Swedish guy as Eric Draven. Brandon Lee was Bruce Lee's son. He was part Asian. Um, with those rumors of Jason Momoa being in talks and then Oscar Isaac more recently... I would have definitely preferred those because they at least have some kind of ethnic brownness to them vaguely, which feels a lot more along the line of Brandon Lee's legacy. Again, he died making this movie, but here they are casting a big Hollywood heartthrob name like Skarsgård, and it just it just feels like a cash grab, and that is that is disrespectful to both Brandon Lee and that movie's legacy. The news on Obi-Wan Kenobi is, again, quite brief. Um, we have just that the premiere episode has been pushed back from Wednesday the 25th of May to Friday the 27th. Uh, the first two episodes, however, will be available on that same first day due to that delay, so that's really great. Um, and it is going to be premiering regularly on Wednesdays after that. So just, just for the first episode, it's been pushed back two days, but you also now get two first episodes instead of just the one. So that's, you know, good and bad news. I feel like two days really isn't a big enough delay to feel significant, in my opinion. But um, but it's just two days. So um, theories that theories are that they might have done that to make room for the Ms. Marvel show. Um, they might have done that to allow for some extra CGI touch-ups after people saw the trailer. Who knows? Doesn't really matter, in my opinion. But just be aware, Obi-Wan Kenobi was pushed back to the 27th of May. The news on Blade and his daughter is that Blade's daughter, Brielle, aka Bloodline, is finally being brought into the comics, or rather a daughter is being brought into the comics. She is showing up in a photo that Blade previously gave to Saffron. Saffron is a character who first appears in Tomb of Dracula number 12 and is the most likely mother of a character like Bloodline. Uh, Bloodline will make her comic book debut in Marvel Comics in the upcoming free comic book day, Avengers X-Men number one. Her history, um, because this is not the first time that they have been trying to set Blade up with the daughter, in 2015, Marvel announced that Tim Seeley and Logan Faber would be doing a new Blade series as part of the all-new, all-different era, which would introduce his daughter, Fallon Gray. She was teased as being an opposite to Peter Parker and would have to be forced to join the family business. Marvel even revealed designs for the character, but the comic never saw the light of day. This idea is now being revived with the character Brielle, aka Bloodline. Uh, we have Danny Lore and Karen S. Darbo on the story. Danny Lore wrote Multiversity Teen Justice 
and Karen S. Darbo wrote Magic the Hidden Planes, well, not wrote, sorry, drew Magic the Hidden Planeswalker. Um, so if you're familiar with either of those two projects, I know I'm familiar a bit with Danny Lore, so that should be, it should be right, it should be fine, you know. Um, but it's pretty, it's very interesting that they're putting Blade's daughter into the comics now, because remember, they do have Mahershala Ali's Blade solo film still in the works as well, and there's very little information on that. I don't think they've even done cast, casting? Have they done casting? I don't think they have. I don't think they've done really much beyond, um, just the basic casting announcement and trying to put people on the team to get it going. Um, but it is apparently still coming, um, and I, I, I find it interesting that they're putting out Blade's Daughter now, um, because as we've mentioned many times before, Marvel, for the MCU, likes to take things, um, if they're bringing a character back, you know, into the MCU, they tend to stick them back in the comics, um, uh, uh with this and and vice versa you know if somebody comes back in the comics it tends to be because they're about to show up in a movie so this the timing of this does feel a little bit like this might be an idea they're testing out to try in the blade movie um and we did see blade well didn't see blade we did hear blade at the end of the eternals movie talking to what will be uh dane whitman's black knight um as he a, you know, comes to the family sword and the whole thing. It's going to be great. Um, so we know Blade is coming. We don't know what kind of Blade they're setting up. Um, obviously, the Blade that we saw in the Blade movies previously, um, you know, is probably going to be pretty different. Um, I don't know. It's it's it's. I'm I'm just spitballing here. But do you think it would be? Po- I mean, obviously it's possible. But do you think it would be a good decision? I think I'm getting ahead of myself. See, I think that's why Marvel is putting this out now is because I think they're testing the waters for Brielle, aka Bloodline. I think they're testing it to see how people react, if they like the character, if they think it's stupid, if they would want to see her in the future. And that that will probably end up being what, de- what determines if we see her in any other projects, including the Blade movie. As for the Daredevil rumors, oh, not rumors, sorry, the Daredevil news, we have now that the Daredevil series is officially canon to the MCU, and that comes from Marvel's official website. Um, There is a report on the Marvel website that talks about the three seasons of his Netflix Daredevil adventures in detail, but it mentions also after all of that, Quote, sometime later, Matt was hired as an attorney to defend Peter Parker. So that pretty much confirms all of that was in the same timeline. Uh, Not only that, having Daredevil in here, it means that Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, Defenders, and Iron Fist are also canon in the MCU by proxy. Um, So those rumors that we heard of Jessica Jones coming back, possibly, there could be some, some footing to that. I don't know, but it's got me a little bit excited. And finally, we're going to talk a tiny bit about Multiverse of Madness because they did come out with a new teaser this week, this weekend, this week, whatever, um, to announce that tickets will be, well, gosh, tickets are on sale today, Wednesday, um, because I'm late in this. Uh, The runtime is going to be two hours and six minutes, which isn't particularly long. Um, and the new teaser, if you want to check that out online, I think they've put out a number of teasers since, since this one that I saw. Um, they do have a bit of footage of Wanda, Wanda doing Scarlet Witch stuff, Wanda doing Wanda stuff, 
obviously the internet completely loved that. Uh, her teaming up with Wong, more Doctor Strange, more versions of Doctor Strange, you know, uh, some cool stuff. So if you want to check that out, again, I'm not particularly hyped for this movie. I'm more excited for what, uh, like, fun comic book Easter eggs I might see in it um, and and how it's going to change the future of the MCU, what, what kind of effect it will have on a larger scale. Now we're going to go ahead and get into the weekly comic book picks. Uh, we do have Demon Days, Batman Beyond the Night White number one, Immortal X-Men number one, um, and then slightly larger section on um, Captain Marvel, and then a few shorter bits on Sensational Wonder Woman, Step by Step, or sorry, Step by Bloody Step number two, Silk number three, Draculina number two, Homesick Pilots 13, and Spider-Woman 21, which I was from a few weeks ago. I'm just super behind still. Um, and then a very, very brief comment on Cities of Magic number one. So starting up there with Putramoku's Demon Days, this was Demon Days' blood feud. Now, the Demon Days series, as we already mentioned on this episode, talking about her future of the series, um, is following Mariko as she discovers her heritage um, in this uh, Marvel Universe, Marvel Comics Universe that Pichimoku is designing to be a lot like um, traditional Japanese storytelling. Um, so it's some really cool, really, really cool designs, really creative twists um, and character uh, changes that she does. Um, and this is the final issue of the first series. As I said, we are going to be getting Civil War as a four-issue series starting in June, which is super exciting. Um, but this one was five issues and this was the final issue of it. So, um, the first thing that I obviously have to mention is how incredibly she outdid herself with the art in this issue. Um, more so as you get further along, I noticed it, um, particularly in certain panels towards the end and then full pages towards the end. I, rem I remember reading this and just, uh, you know, obviously her art is fantastic, um, but one thing that she has to do a lot, or I find her to be doing a lot um, with her art, is because I imagine it's because she has so many projects going on between covers for every publisher that there is and her own stories and, you know, whatever else she might be working on for herself. Um, she, t she, 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 she ends up kind of forced into a position of using space filling techniques to um, complete a page because it's faster. Um, you know, swaths of gray ink pool on the page that looks just like a nice semi-colored background, stuff like that. Um, simple things that really just make it look full so you don't have so much white space uh, once you get down the, the necessary story parts of the comic. Um, and that's something I, that's not a critique, again, that is, um, something that I recognize as her being insanely busy and while her art style is probably she would like to be a lot more intricate um that 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 is how quickly she has to get it done to have it out on time because it is a lot of work um you can kind of see similar things with Phil Noto's art a uh, good example would be looking at his art from X of Swords um, I believe it was a Marauders issue. I could be wrong, but then he also did art recently, more recently on, uh, the Devil's Reign X-Men three issue tie-in series, um, which was focused on Kingpin, Emma Frost, and Elektra, which was a really fun one. Um, if you compare his 
uh, Devil's Reign work, which is current, to his work from a few years ago, which was X of Swords, um, you can tell the, his art style is still fantastic. He's still his art style, blah, blah, blah. But you can tell that there were certain uh, creative changes made for the sake of time. Um, you know, I, I for a long time would, would identify Phil Noda's art by the, like, kind of glowy edges everything has. Not recently, though, because I believe that's something that he does when he has time. And he hasn't had time. And I blame that on publishers, 100%, because publishers not allowing their artists the time to do what they do best is what we could see with these kinds of things that are maybe not quite as filled in as they could be, not quite as detailed as they could be, um, etc. So with this issue of Demon Days, now that I've gone on about that for a while, um, with this issue of Demon Days, I did not see any of that. Um, and I was just insanely impressed from the start. But as you go along, you know, you get Mariko, she's up against her sister in this finale. Um, and so her sister has her Hulk, who they call Halbo. And he's this little kid who, I think he's like a toddler, who like turns into the Hulk. is nuts. I love it. Um, and she ends up beating him by by figuring out how to counteract his Hulk powers or something. Um, and then she... she basically almost dies. Mariko, Mariko loses, basically. Um, but her sister makes sure that she doesn't actually die um, because she realizes, yes, we are sisters. It was not her fault that, you know, what happened with our life and our mother happened. Um, and as you get further along in the issue, you know, it ends with Mariko going back to life, basically, in this world, which is turns out to be a completely modern world. And as you get into the last few pages, I felt like I was reading a manga, um, by which I mean details were not spared. Is that the right way to say that? She did not spare a single detail. Um, everything, like, as you get further along in the issue, up to the last, like, four or five pages, that at that point, I was just staring at the art. Um, she completely outdid herself is the best Peach Moko art I have ever seen in those last few pages of Demon Days. Completely stunning. I don't know if they just gave her a little extra time or if she was able to focus more on this or what. Whatever the change was that allowed her to put this out in this way. Oh god, let's let's let her do that every time, guys, because that shit was bonkers good. So good. Anyway, Demon Days will continue with Mariko uh, with the Civil War parts. This week also, last week also had Sean Gordon Murphy releasing his newest uh, iteration in his Murphyverse, which is what the official title for his DC universe that is not on canon um, is called. And this one, this series is Batman Beyond the White Knight number one. It's going to be of eight. Now, a brief history of the Murphyverse. Uh, it started off with Batman White Knight in 2017, which ran for eight issues. It was a story about how Batman is more than usual morally questionable. Joker has dissociative identity disorder, basically, and his other personality, Jack, ends up running for mayor of Gotham with the legitimate goal of saving the city. Um, and then, of course, Joker's identity, along with Batman's mistrust of Jack, are the villains. It's a really great story. And then you get, uh, in 2019, you get Batman Curse of the White Knight, which is another eight-issue series, where the Joker identity finds a way to overcome Jack's control and leads Batman and Bruce Wayne on a journey to discover the Wayne family's greatest secret and greatest shame. 
I'm not going to go through explaining what all that was. It's a long story. Read it yourself. Basically, the Waynes are not the Waynes. Um, yeah. <laughs> so then we get after that. Um, Batman White Knight presents Harley Quinn, which happened in 2020. It was a six-issue series through 2021. It takes place, I believe, three years after its predecessor, um, where you have Harley Quinn as the main character, of course. And she here, with the help of Poison Ivy and her girlfriend Neo Joker, who is the uh, Joker stan wannabe who was introduced in the previous series and no longer cares about the Joker because the Joker's dead, um... Uh, so you get Harley Quinn getting help from Poison Ivy, Neo Joker, as well as Duke Thomas, uh, and an imprisoned Bruce Wayne who has gone to jail for being Batman. Uh, she helps the GCPD track down a local serial killer with a certain specific flair. And now this we have, it takes place 10 years after, I believe, Curse of the White Knight. Or possibly the Harlequins. I think it takes place 10 years after the Harlequin series. And it is more or less the Sean Gordon Murphy retelling of Batman Beyond. So the story picks up with Terry McGinnis, of course, who Murphy has confirmed he is portraying on purpose, specifically as half Asian in the story, because that is how Murphy always thought he looked in the original animated Beyond series. McGinnis in this is scavenging the Wayne Manor ruins in what was once outer Gotham, now half buried under the city. He's being directed by Derek Powers, our apparent villain for the series. Powers is aware of the bat suit that Wayne had designed before being put into jail, but he never wore it because he even saw that suit as being too dangerous. He instructs McGinnis to wear the suit and fight his way out through the pursuing GCPD officers, which he does to their great physical harm. The suit flies and he takes off. That's pretty much all we see of Terry in this first issue. Harley Quinn, meanwhile, is at home getting her kids ready for dinner. Bryce is, she has twins, right? So Bryce is a good son, but Jackie, the daughter, takes after her father, his Joker half specifically. To make matters worse, she just discovered the documents connecting Harley Quinn to their father's murder, her own husband who was taken over by the Joker half of his personality at the time. In Blackgate, or wherever it is that they're keeping Bruce, I'm honestly not sure, uh, he quells another apparent, apparently another riot in another long list of riots that he's helped, uh, but only just before Dick Grayson, commander of the Gotham GCPD, crash, Gotham GC, the Gotham Gotham, crashes the prison in his new Wayne slash Powers funded GCPD tank and bat suits. He also fills Bruce in on what's been going on outside the prison in Gotham, that Powers is up to something and there's a new Batman running around. So that night, Bruce breaks out. He is, of course, stopped by Jason Todd, who is a guard at the prison. They even have a talk that gives a ton of backstory between the two of them. Now, in this version of the story, Jason Todd was Batman's first Rob He's still taken by the Joker and tortured, but he gives up Batman's identity and is left alive, though completely alone. He takes the time that he needs to physically and mentally heal, and then he goes back to see Bruce, only to find that he has taken on a new Robin, Dick Grayson. He felt replaceable then, and now Bruce clarifies that he's actually spent every day since then trying to fill the Jason-sized hole in his heart. He spent decades acting as a brother to him, Dick, and the other Bat family members when what they needed was a father. Jason says he understands more than Bruce knows, and the art shows what he means. Now it's Jason who goes out at night, as Red Hood, with a Robin of his own. It's a female character. I think she might be Cassandra Kane, who is orphan in the regular comics um, and has a neat little history of her own. 
We will see more of Jason's story in Batman The White Knight Presents Red Hood Number 1, which is the start to an apparent series of its own. I spent a good time on Google yesterday, and I am still unsure about that. Uh, in February, apparently it was rumored that Sean Gordon Murphy would co-write the series with Clay McCormack, and it would be drawn by Simone DeMeo. Uh, but that is not really clear if that's still happening, or if it's just a one-shot. Murphy recently said that one of the goals of the new book is to humanize Red Hood. He will take on a daughter figure, and he, as he trains her, he becomes... He comes to a new he comes to new realizations about his relationship with Batman, ultimately emphasizing with his former mentor, and so that's uh, the Murphyverse Beyond the White Knight number one, and we will be continuing the series as it goes, and apparently we're going to be getting White Knight Presents Red Hood number one, uh, possibly as a one shot or a series, unsure, in July. Immortal X-Men number one by Kieran Gillen and Lucas Wernick. Um, honestly, I only pick this up for that team. If it was anybody but those two on this comic, I probably wouldn't have bothered. A couple of fun notes to start us off. Uh, we have Leah Destiny in one scene dressed as Lady Dimitrescu, which I probably pronounced wrong. I don't play that game. Um, and, which was pretty funny because I know Lucas Wernick has a thing for her. Uh, and so that was quite hilarious to see her slip her in there in that outfit um we also have exodus in an interesting panel confirming that jesus was a mutant i can't believe nobody's talking about this but he actually has this been confirmed already because he literally says quote the nazarene mutant inspired a church among the humans for raising a couple from the dead he's talking about jesus Jesus was a mutant. I just think that's, like, such a fun thing to put in the Marvel Universe. Am I wrong? I don't know. Whatever. Okay. So let's let's go ahead and uh, talk about the actual comic now. Um, this is by far my favorite ongoing X-Book, and it's probably one of the only ones that I'm going to keep on, and there is a good explanation for why that is. Writer Kieran Gillen was the last piece of Jonathan Hickman's Ekman that Ekman, oh wow, X-Men that Hickman brought into the project of his whole redesign he was doing. With Immortal X-Men, Kieran Gillen is following the outline of what Hickman already had planned for the X-Men and for Krakoa. So as far as the current X-Books go, this one, Immortal X-Men, is actually the closest to what Hickman would be continuing forward with them, if he had been able <laughs> been allowed to. Um, so that's that's why it's honestly so good. So this is told entirely from the perspective of Mr. Sinister. Uh, we have Magneto leaves the council in the beginning, so they start taking interviews of replacement candidates. Those who interview include Angel, Beast, Abigail Brand, Gordon, or sorry, Gord, Gorgon, I said Gordon, Penance, Vulcan, and Selene. Selene almost gets the seat because she knows magic in a similar way that Apocalypse did, and his replacement, which was Destiny, was not an equal replacement for his magical abilities. But Exodus approaches Hope with the news of an open council seat, and after speaking with the five, she decides that the seat is hers. Basically, the entire idea of Krakoa rests on the five. So what they get or what they want, they get. Oh, I'm just messing it all up today. Uh, what they want, they get. They already put their foot down about not bringing back clones, saying that all clones are their own persons permanently, officially. So they went ahead and did that, right? Um, same thing about precogs. They said, uh, no, screw you, we're going to bring Destiny back. So they did. Um, 
And I, re- I really like the stuff about Hope that they put in this. The Hope putting her foot down and basically saying, uh, you owe me, so this is my seat now. Um, so I hope, pun not intended, that Sinister isn't gonna, you know, hurt her in any way. He clearly has some kind of plan involving her going on. Um, I really, really dig how Exodus treats her and literally calls her Messiah. It's a great callback to her birth as the first mutant post-decimation all of that madness um and now with her being part of the five and the group the the group that literally brings any mutant back from the dead she is more like a messiah than ever and i dig her being treated like that and i dig her on a power trip if that's what you want to call this um it was awesome (laughs) also the art was completely fantastic. Uh, it looks like they actually gave Wernick enough time to do his thing, and by to do his thing, I mean make stunningly beautiful art. Um, if you compare this to his art in Trial of Magneto, you can tell Trial of Magneto was kind of rushed. This time, just like with Pichamoko's final issue of Demon Days, they gave him enough time to get it right. I mean, his art's fantastic either way, but you can tell it was not rushed. It was not cutting corners. Um, this was Wernick putting in all of his effort and all of the time that he needed. So that was great. He draws every character absolutely superbly. Every costume is flattering. You know, say what you want about unrealistic expectations. Wernick has an aesthetic of beauty in comics that you just cannot beat. Especially when it comes to writing a traditionally horny group like the X-Men. It just fits so well. One thing that I wanted to note also was I was really confused about who Celine was at first because they didn't mention her name until like the next page. Um, and then she mentions bringing back Genosian zombies, which was very confusing. However, Celine and Wanda Maximoff apparently have both reanimated Genosian zombies, which is something that they definitely should have clarified with an editor's note box because... I'm sure a lot of people don't know that. I asked my husband who's been reading comics his whole life and he didn't know that. So that should have been an editor's box. But to explain that, uh, in 2009's Necrotia crossover event, Celine, who was the former black queen at the Hellfire Club, she gains access to the Technarch Transmode virus, fun words, and reanimates several dead mutants in order to become a goddess. She then leads her undead mutants in army to attack the X-Men. Not to be confused with Empire X-Men, which is when the Scarlet Witch attempts to revive all 16 million mutants who were killed on Genosha. Unfortunately, that backfires, creating an island entirely of zombie mutants. (laughs) Complicating matters was the arrival of the Koyatai, who were a plant-like alien race who arrived to wipe out all non-plant life on Earth. Now, do you remember Moira McTaggart? Hickman revealed in his run that she is a mutant with the power to restart life when hers ends, basically resetting the timeline with her. In Inferno, Mystique took away the possibility of this happening by or rather of this reality being reset particularly by taking away Moira's mutant powers no mutant power to end reality, no ending reality. But in the end of this issue, it is revealed that Mr. Sinister has several cloins of Moira. Cloins? Clones of Moira. Which I think means that he can reset this reality whenever he wants. And he also mentioned he has a contingency to bring his surviving self up to speed in the new reality. So, 
I mean, it feels like they're a bit screwed. Uh, there's also a number of white pages as Hickman uh, started the tradition covering teases of forecoming events in the series and the secrets of the mutants in general, who knows them and who doesn't, uh, which are definitely pages worth checking out if you're going to be keeping up with the series or anything with X-Men. Um, it was some really interesting information. Now, for the Quiet Council, this is the official Quiet Council since all the seats have been now filled and I don't think we're losing any other members anytime soon. There is autumn, winter, spring, summer um, tables of the of the council circle. So on the autumn on the autumn table, you have Xavier who wears Cerebro. Sinister thinks that he is a coward of a telepath. You have Hope now, who Sinister wanted her on the council desperately to get his plans moving, but we're not really sure how that's going to go. And we have Destiny, who um, Sinister calls a scientist, seer, and sapphist, which is very appropriate. On the winter table, you have Sinister himself, of course. You have Exodus, who Sinister calls a religious nut, but he's also super powerful and Sinister secretly fears him. Uh, based on this first issue, I am looking forward to him taking on a much larger role in the series than he has in the past, basically not really being there at all. Um, Mystique is also on the winter table. She is a form changer, anarchist, wife of destiny, and mother of Nightcrawler. For the spring table, you have Kate, who is also in the past Kitty, Ariel, Shadowcat, etc. She is ethical and she runs the Marauders. You have Emma, who has had enough of useless men and who runs the Hellfire Club. Me too, Emma. Shaw, who is under Emma's thumb these days. And then the summer, uh, I want to say court, but I don't think that's what they call them. I'm thinking of monstrous. Oh my god, I'm thinking of the Dawn and Dusk Court at monstrous. The summer table, which is Storm, who is the new monarch of Mars slash Arako. Sinister notes here that he used to be a huge racist, but surgically, surgically excised that bit of his personality. I, I, I thought it was funny. Uh, and then you have Colossus, who is... I think formally on X-Force, I don't think he's on the team anymore, but he is currently under the mind control of Russia, who are at arms with Krakoa, and nobody knows that, and now he's on the Quiet Council, so obviously problems ensue. And then there is Nightcrawler, who is currently working with Legion and Pixie, and who Sinister sees as ultimately useless. Finally, you have Cypher and Krakoa, who are their own parts of the council. Cypher is Doug Ramsey, who is melded with both Krakoa and Warlock to be aware of everything that happens on the island to no one's knowledge, uh, except for, I think now, Destiny and Mystique. And then you have Krakoa, of course, who is itself the living island. That pretty much wraps up the stuff that I'm going to go really in-depth for. Uh, and now we have kind of some sh some shorter things, starting off with Captain Marvel number 37, which I have to say was a huge relief how much I enjoyed this issue. This is had some absolutely fantastic art, um, and I do believe it is probably one of the best issues they've done in a while. I've said it before, and I will continue to say it again. Kelly Thompson writes Carol best when she writes her among other characters. Usually that means friends, but her Spider-Man style of fighting while giving quirky remarks works on familiar villains as well. Uh, but this issue had Carol taking Binary to a club after, um, well, my one issue with the thing is that a kitten dies. I, I can't do that. I'm sorry. My, my empathy is a bit too bit too raw to deal with animal deaths be that in fiction or facts um when my cat dies i don't know what i'll do but um 
a cat dies and it's very upsetting honestly but uh they handle it pretty well and they're changing binary about life and death so that's why all that went down um it wasn't like it happened for no purpose that was the purpose of it to teach binary about life death fragile things humans and yeah uh so they go and take her to a girls night out dancing and so you get um let's see monica was there first so then you get it was jessica uh l'oreal who is the accuser who was carol's half-sister um i think uh hazmat was there and it's probably a few others but that was it was really awesome you get the artist um I, i'm very curious about this issue because there was a more than usual amount of quirky background jokes um for example binary is of course the character's name she goes to the party and she wears a dress decorated in binary code genius and hilarious right there was a lot of stuff like that and i'm very curious um because this issue happened to have so much more than usual um if that was the artist doing that or if that was kelly thompson's instructions i'm very curious about that but in any case um really really great issue they take her they take her dancing um and have a good time and i always always want more monica and carol interaction they've never really been close and as the two female captain marvels of this universe i feel like that needs to change it's it's good to see them interact as a bit closer in this issue than they have been before because that means their relationship is developing more and i really really enjoy that um due to the magical piss cat creatures who show up again in this issue no i'm not making that up um carol ends up being kidnapped um and so in the next issues we're going to have them bring whoever them are i th believe agatha harkness was actually in one of the solicitations uh they're bringing her to a council of magical people to bring her to justice for whatever it is that they consider her crimes to be and meanwhile binary i guess is going to be taking over in her place on earth so um, actually, it sounds like a really fun arc of Captain Marvel. I still think that Kelly Thompson is about to be replaced because the annual that's coming out, well, today, <laughs> sorry, um, is written by another woman, and I think that they're testing the waters for how the audience likes her as a Captain Marvel writer. But we shall see. We shall see. The Sensational Wonder Woman special was honestly a bit shorter than I was hoping it would be. It had only three stories in it. The first was a story by Paula Sevenbergen and Paul Pelletier. A superhero day at Eastside Boys and Girls Center where Kid Will dresses as Wonder Woman. A villain known as Blue Snowman attacks and the kid ends up having to save his bully. And Diana shows up to fight Blue Snowman giving the kid her crown in the end. So cute. The other stories were by Paul Collins and Ryan Christie, and Stephanie Phillips and Aletha Martinez, where Cersei body swaps Wonder Woman as a teenager. Step by Bloody Step number two continues the story uh, in the same way that the first one did. We have no dialogue, uh, just the art, pretty much. And in this issue, the girl who we saw in the first issue has grown into what appears to be teenage age with all of the attitude to go along with it. She and her guardian soldier thing are attacked by pursuing forces and the guardian ends up slaughtering a bunch of captives to free them they continue onward into new parts of the world where they spy what appears to be a princess in a car 
That's all I got there. Silk number three of five. Sidney tracks down the witch and fights her, but the witch uses her webs to siphon off her life energy because her webs don't come from her, making Cindy an old woman. Draculina number two. When one is in charge, one being Kate or Draculina, the other goes to an astral plane of sorts, kind of like Donny Cates wrote about in uh, the first arc of his Thor, well, second arc of his Thor. Um... Uh, this astral plane takes place in the group home where they were abused growing up in. The demon Belial, who is Draculina's father, is looking for her and finds her as she dies as Katie on the road. So hopefully things will be okay. Homesick Pilots number 13. You learn that the horseshoe is the father to the toilet seat. Long story. And Spider-Woman number 21 was actually the series finale, which I did not realize it was a good issue, if a quick one. Going into comic book polls this week, I'd like to go through this the way that I have of late, and we do have a lot of number ones. Uh, so we'll start by going through the number ones and the one-shots and the annuals, which uh, will have the description, the solicitation of the issue, and then we'll get into the other issues, which have less solicitation, because I end up repeating myself a lot. First issue I'm very excited for and has a lovely, lovely Jenny Frizen cover, Alice Ever After, number one. This is by Dan Panosian, who is a fantastic writer, and Giorgio Spalletta. Actually, Dan Panosian is a fantastic artist as well. Return to Wonderland in this twisted sequel by superstar artist and writer Dan Panosian, perfect for fans of Mirka Andolfo's Mercy and Luna. Two fan-fucking-tastic series, I gotta say. Alice first visited Wonderland as a child. Now an adult, it's her only it's her only escape from a cold, strange reality she finds herself living in. But in order to return to her fantasy world, she'll need something stronger than mushrooms that will change her size, and is forced to resort to crime to feed her growing addiction. Will Alice choose to escape from her uncaring family and childhood drama in Wonderland, or find the courage to face her demons in the real world? This one is from Boom Studios. From Aftershock, we have The Ocean Will Take Us Number One, written by Rich Dweck and drawn by Carlos Oliveras. Something's lurking in the waters of Alamanzar Bay. When Casey March tries out for the swim team, he learns firsthand that messing with the social order of his new high school can have dangerous, even deadly consequences. Stargirl Number One comes from Behemoth and writer artist Lucas Mendoza, or possibly Mendoca. The comic, er, sorry, the cosmic organization known as Stargirl no longer exists. As enemy forces continue to threaten the integrity of planets as a whole, a group known as the Moon Gang, formed by four general Stargirls from the moons of Jupiter, intercepts the enemy. I don't know what the shit they're talking about, but it sounds kind of like Sailor Moon, uh, uh, what do they call them? Um, shoot, there's a name for that kind of the guardians i can't remember it but it's the name of that kind of story that kind of anime where it's the guardian girls shit i feel like an idiot for not remembering it but this is what stargirl sounds like and that's why i'm interested in it west of sundown number one is a vault comics release by aaron campbell tim seeley and artist jim terry a beautiful ancient vampire must flee monster slayers in new york city and reclaim the ancestral soil that restores her undead flesh but things have changed since she was reborn in New Mexico desert, and now Constance Durabend and her loyal ex-confederate assistant Dooley must adapt to the life, to life in the rough frontier town of Sangre de Moro, a western tale of surviving, 
of Survival starring a cast of literary horrors. The Captain Marvel Annual Number 1 I mentioned earlier, this one is by Torin Grombeck and art by the illustrious Carlos Gomez. Captain Marvel, behind bars. Carol has gotten herself into an intergalactic scale of trouble with the Karaski military, and now she's locked up in their city-like prison with the Star Jammers. Will they be able to blast their way out, or will they be lost to the authoritarian labyrinth of Karaski law? Um, my theory, as I already mentioned, is that they're using this issue to test out the new writer for the series going forward, and I predict that we will know by summer if that's going to happen or not. By summer, I say June, July at the latest. Um, I also want to mention that Carol does have a deep history with the Star Jammers. Um, when she was binary, it was, uh, she, be uh, she became binary because she was depowered and then she went off to hang out with the X-Men. Um, and then she, the X-Men got captured by, you know, uh, the Brood and the Brood experimented on Carol and she turned into binary, uh, which, you know, with her new not new, but like with with the reset of who she is being half Cree actually makes even more sense than it did before. Um, so it's nice. To, and then after she becomes binary, of course, she goes off and she joins the Star Jammers for a good long while. Um, so it'd be very interesting to see Carol back with the Star Jammers. I'm super curious what the dynamics going to be like because she is, of course, not binary, and she is not also the uh, the same Carol who. Um, had just lost all of her memories, pretty much, um, of, of, of emotional attachments to people. So very interested to see the dynamic between Carol and the Star Jammers. Uh, and this is not a flashback story. This is one that takes place with her as Captain Marvel, uh, but obviously not in line with what's currently going on with Captain Marvel. This is one from like maybe a year or two ago. Something like that. You know, comics. Spider-Punk number one gets its first solo series by Cody Ziglar and Justin Mason. Anarchy in the Spider-Verse. Spider-Punk gets his own series. Hobie Brown is the anarchic... An anarchic? Is that a word? Anarchic Spider-Punk <laughs> says to protect Earth-138 with his axe in hand and his chaotic band of punk rockin' heroes backing him. Norman Osborn is dead, but will the chaos he's created be too much for Spider-Punk and gang to handle? Feel the vibes as Cody Ziglar and Justin Mason brings you the jams when Band in DC begins here. X-Men Red number one starts this week from Al Ewing and Stefano Caselli. Uh, it says, who can save the Red Planet? The mutants of Arako spent millennia scarred by war, but on what was once called Mars, they're learning to live in peace. Storm knows the Red Planet needs something greater than a queen, but Abigail Brandt has other plans, along with the unstable Vulcan on her side and Cable keeping his own secrets. Welcome to X-Men Red. It's a whole new world, and someone has to fight for it. Um... I, I'd love to get into that because I love Storm, of course, and this whole idea of Arako and the Arako mutants, and I just it's a great segment of what's going on with X-Men right now. The thing is, don't like Abigail Brand, don't give a shit what's going on with her, genuinely cannot care less. Um, and Al Ewing is a very hit-and-miss writer. Um, Immortal, Immortal Hulk was like bonkers good but then like his uh his sword series i could not take it seriously for a single panel so bad and i know people really loved it so sorry but that shit was bad um 
So I'm curious, you know, is this going to be an immortal X-Men or a sword? I don't know. We'll see. But either way, I am here for Storm and only Storm. That wraps up the number ones that we have for the week. We also have Strange number two coming from Jed McKay and Marcelo Fiera. This is Clea's first solo series. She is the super, super, super sorcerer supreme of Earth and apparently the Dark Dimension as well, which has not been explained yet. Um, we have Wonder Woman Historia, the Amazons number two from Kelly Sue DeConnick and Jean Ha. It is a DC Black Label uh, issue. And it is prestige plus magazine size, extra large, extra thick. Um, that's what she said. Um, I'm, I'm not a child. <laughs> we also have Batman Killing Time number two of six by Tom King and David Marquez. She-Hulk number three of five by Rainbow Roll and Rohe Antonio. And Black Widow number 15 by Kelly Thompson, Elena Casagrande, and Jordi Belair. Last issue, she got her right arm cut off, and I didn't notice until then. Literally every promo image for Black Widow that they put out for post-issue 14 has had her right arm not in the frame. Because they're trying to not spoil that. Genius. Sorry, I just gotta appreciate that for a second. Genius. At long last now, let's go ahead and start talking about Moon Knight. Episode 1, The Goldfish Problem. This premiered Wednesday the 30th, a week ago now, uh, on Disney+. Plus. There is another episode today, and it will be up on the standard Monday episode coming this coming week. How we go... I'm just pretty much going to go through the events of the episode and just kind of talk about the, the comic stuff and the theories and all that as we go along. So starting off with the beginning, Arthur Harrow crushes a glass and puts his puts the glass in his shoes, walking off on the shards from a temple of some kind. My guess is that he walks on the shards to atone for his life's own misdeeds, much like religious flagellation, which is something that religious extremists do in certain groups. Harrow in the comics is not a relevant character in the slightest, but in his one issue that he appeared in, he was a studier of pain, so that might have some kind of tie over to what he's doing here. He, he, as in, I just wrote he in my notes. Good one. Uh, Stephen wakes up in his room, tied to a pole with sand around the bed to see if he's walked off at all in the middle of the night. He unstraps himself, checks his perimeter, checks the tape on the door, and goes about his day. He works at the gift shop in the British Museum. Actually, it's not the British Museum. It is some kind of combination of the British Museum and some other British Museum that is not called the British Museum. Uh, but we're going to refer to it as the British Museum because that's easier. Uh, he works there in the gift shop, which has a display on ancient Egypt. He wants to be a tour guide, but he only works at the gift shop. He points out a display in the Enad to his boss, or sorry, a display that the Enad only has seven gods on their poster, when the Enad has actually nine gods. On the poster, you can see that there is Tefnut, Shu, Osiris, oh sorry, Ori <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote that wrong, Osiris, Horus, Geb, Hathor, and you can't really tell what the seventh is. Um, there are many Egyptian Enads. This, however, is just one. It is the Enead of Heliopolis. Uh, the Heliopolis, the Heliopolis Enead is Atom, Shu, Tefnut, Geb, Nut, Osiris, Seth, Isis, and Nephithis, or Nephthys. Um, so it could be missing the seven gods that they have there on their poster. Could be missing some combination of Atom, Nut, and or Nephthys. 
Atum also fathered Shu and Tefnut, who then beget Geb and Nut, who then birthed Osiris, Seth, Isis, and Nephthys. So they're all related, as most of these um, deities are from various groups. The actual tour guide at the museum comes over to confirm Stephen's date with her at 7 o'clock the next day, which he doesn't remember asking her out for. But luckily, she just kind of laughs it off. Um, it is worth noting here that his boss's name is Donna, which is likely a reference to Donna Kraft, who is Mark, Spe Mark Spector's head publicist at SpecterCore in the comics in the 90s. He ends up talking to one of those gold-painted statue guys who pose with tourists outside on his break, telling him about the weird stuff uh, about his night walking and all that and being chained to his bed. He talks to him as if this guy is responding, even though he never actually does. He even takes a picture of him with a couple and reminds them to tip him before he walks before they walk off. And when Steven is done, he tips him as well and goes off. Though notably, this is seen through the reflection over water as a leaf drops in and creates ripples, which is a big metaphor uh, big, big, hugely symbolic for the inner mind, layers, and other mental health and reality warping concepts. Lots of symbolism in this episode, okay? Uh, also, the statue guy is a reference to Crawley, a comic book homeless man that Mark uses for a long time as an informant. At home, he resets all his systems of checking if he gets out of bed or not. He tries to keep himself awake, listening to a voice recording that is meant to help people do just that. Notably, when the recording gets to the point talking about stories, the ones you'd like to be a part of, Stephen pulls out a book on the Inead, again, heavy on the symbolism. The audio starts to overlap as he reads and plays with a Rubik's Cube before he awakens in a field with no memory of arriving there. His draw is completely displaced and he's clearly been in some kind of fight. At first the field looks empty and from the angle that he's at, he's surrounded by glass like he fell through a window. An angry voice in his head tells him to go back to sleep, calling him a worm. It says he's not supposed to be there. It tells him to surrender the body to Mark. He finds a golden scarab in his pocket, and for a moment we see a large figure behind him, roped, robed in wrappings. It is Khonshu, but we don't get to properly see him quite yet. When Mark turns around, he is standing at the foot of a castle with a broken window above him. He waves to the guy out the window, who shoots at him. Khonshu's, uh, presumably this is Khonshu's voice still, uh, tells him to run. In the comics... Moon Knight is actually given a scarab in Moon Knight Volume 2, issue number 1. Mark's lover and current ally, Marlene, had briefly convinced him to abandon the Moon Knight persona, but he soon finds himself called to a hidden cavern in Thebes. There, he meets the priests of Khonshu, who give him scarab darts along with other ancient artifacts and weapons to make him Moon Knight once more. That's where the scarab comes from. The castle... Um, is something very similarly along the lines of New Schwanstein, if you are familiar at all with that. It is the it is the castle that Disneyland Castle was inspired by. In, inspired by. I'm tumbling over my words. Um, there's also some mild speculation that that castle was Doomstadt in Latveria, but I'm sorry, folks. Generic Alps do not auto equate Latveria. Sorry, guys. Europe is a large place. Stephen runs into the local village where he finds more men chasing him. He tries to blend in until the crown 
uh, into the town, the crowd in the town parts, letting through Arthur Harrow. He addresses the crowd and asks who wants to go first. Man comes up, offering himself for judgment. Uh, Harrow says he wants to serve our goddess even before she wakes. And judges the man with his cane in Amit's name, quote, but with a fraction of her power. He is judged to be a good man. The next woman who comes up is not so lucky and is done, uh, judged unworthy, so she is killed on the spot by some magical force. One of the soldiers comes to report to Hera that there was a problem with the exchange and that they were ambushed, no doubt, by um, Moon Knight. Not knowing what he looks like, Harrow calls out, praise Amit in some other language, and the whole crowd kneels, aside from Stephen, who doesn't know that that's what he just said. <laughs> so he's left standing there, outing himself as the outsider. Harrow says he knows him, calls him a mercenary, which is, of course, what he is in the comics. He insists his name is Stephen Grant, and he works at a gift shop, trying to get home to London. But even he can tell that his accent isn't right. When they ask him for the scarab, he tries to hand it over but physically can't, like his body is controlled by something or someone else. He ends up fighting them off in this way, going as far as to briefly black out and wake up a few minutes later with a bunch of unconscious and or dead men around him. Apparently, Mark took over for a bit. This happens through the ensuing fight as they go through the mountain and cars and have some crazy high-speed chase and all kinds of nuts stuff like that. When Mark wakes up, uh, he gets some more words from Conchu. People are half dead. Conchu calls him a parasite. He blacks out again. When he wakes up once more, finally, he is back in his room, tied up. The sand has not moved. He has not left the bed. The door on the tape on the door is even there. He thinks it's a dream. So Mark is covering his tracks. But the question is why? Uh, then Stephen notices that Gus, his fish, uh, has two fins. Gus is his one finned fish. So he takes him to the fish shop and says, like I said yesterday, or sorry, the, sh the gift shop lady tells him, like I said yesterday, they all have two fins. And Stephen is just wildly confused. He sees the clock, gets more confused, has got to go to his date. Um, one thing that I, I didn't notice the first time watching this was when he's getting ready for his date, he looks into a single mirror and see how he looks, and then he turns away, and he, when he turns back, it is now three mirrors. Dun dun dun! Uh, when he goes to the date, of course, she doesn't show. He calls her to see what happened, and she tells him that the date was two days ago. It is not Friday. Today is Sunday. He orders a steak in the worst manner possible. It had me dying of laughter. In the comic, Harrow's only appearance issue had Mark stood up on a date by Marlene, his main love interest and eventual, you know, well, yeah, it's just main love interest. We'll go with that. Uh, some people were wondering if the tour guide whose date he missed is going to end up being Mar this Marlene figure. I, I highly doubt it. I don't think she's important. At home, Mark, sorry, Stephen discovers a hiding place that he was unaware of in his ceiling. It has a key and a cell phone in it. It also has a bunch of missed calls on the phone from someone named Layla who calls now. She's relieved that he answers and to hear that he's alive. Apparently it's been months and she asks why he's using an accent. She calls him Mark. He asks why she called him that and she hangs up. There is a voice in the apartment that calls him by his name, telling him to stop. He gets really creeped out, looks around, and then sees that it's his reflection in the mirror, telling him to stop looking. They get flickering lights and shaking apartment, and so he flees. Now, uh, it's more likely that Layla is Marlene, 
aka Mark's main love interest in the, in the comics, whose story is also tied up with his origin. But she could also be Dr. Emmett, who is a character from the comics who has no first name, leaving room for Layla Emmett, you know. Uh, but she also has apparent ties with Amit. Or at least she appears as Amit to Mark in a dream. Interestingly, the cell phone screen has a crocodile on the uh, as a cartoon when she calls him. So that could also be Amit being a crocodile-headed goddess. It could be all tied together. Um, finally, looking at the calls that he had made or received... He had all of them as Layla except for one, which is Duchamp, who is a mercenary friend of, of Mark's from the comics. I have a feeling it's probably just going to be an Easter egg, not actually a tease for anything coming. So he goes out of his building and the elevator breaks down and he sees the enormous figure of Khonshu coming down the hall towards him. When Khonshu makes it to the elevator, he transforms pretty much into an old woman, which makes me wonder, did he actually transform into an old woman? Or is this a messing with, um, with Stephen's mind and just being like, oh, JK was an old woman this whole time? Not really sure. Uh, they eventually arrive back at the fifth floor in the elevator where the woman says her friend Claire is expecting her. No doubt to make sure that he doesn't kill her thinking that she's alone, <laughs> which is kind of sad. Um, again, he sees Conchu and then he wakes up the next day on a bus. He sees Conchu out the window and is really freaked out. So he gets off, sees Harrow on the bus following him. Oh, gee, Harrow's on the bus. That means I wasn't dreaming. So he goes to his job at the museum and manages to run into Harrow there still. Harrow says he thought Stephen Grant was an alias, um, and when Stephen tries to get the security officer to help, it's revealed that he's actually already on Harrow's side. Harrow says the scarab belongs to Amit, that she grew weary of waiting for sinners to commit their crimes to punish them. Uh, hello, Civil War II? <laughs> when he tries to leave, it's revealed everyone in the museum is already on Harrow's side, at least everyone who matters. Harrow continues telling him that Amit was betrayed by her fellow gods, even by her own avatar, her vessel. He even tells her, uh, he even tells Stephen to just stop it because he's, because Stephen is so clueless. He thinks he's just making this stuff up. So he just tells him to stop it <laughs> because he's like frustrating Harrow with his like cluelessness. Uh, and then Harrow uses his cane to, st to test Stephen but the, it just goes back and forth. They can't decide if he's good or bad. And Harrow tells him at that point in the line of the trailer, there is chaos in you. Um, some have pointed out that chaos magic is something that was introduced in the MCU with Wanda slash Scarlet Witch. That is an interesting note, um, but I don't think that's what Harrow means. Others have also pointed out that in Moon, that same issue, Moon Knight Volume 2, Number 1, where he speaks to the priests of Khonshu and gives Mark the tools to become Moon Knight again, um, the priest tells him to tame the dark and the chaos, which could also be slightly a, uh, allusion to that, but more than likely it just means that Mark contains multitudes, but maybe not in the fun way. As he goes to leave work that night, he hears a dog. Uh, it's some kind of jackal. Stephen hides and Harrow calls out to him over the intercom, telling him to hand over the scarab and he won't be torn apart. He manages to hide in the bathroom as the beast tries to break in, and Mark comes and talks to him from the mirror. He says he needs to give him control if he's going to save them. Notably, Mark says, I'm real. The phrasing of that is a little bit 
tricky because that could make me think that Mark is a true identity or that could be that Mark is another true identity. Unreally sure. Unreally sure. Unsure about that really here. Um, it could be possible that if Mark is the true identity, Stephen just popped up a few months ago as a coping mechanism. Also, uh, Mark's hair is different from Stephen's. Stephen's is like messily tousled and Mark's is much lockier curls. There are hieroglyphs that flash on the walls as Steven lets Mark take over. His body becomes covered in the white wrappings of Moon Knight, covering him in the costume. The jackal breaks in and Moon Knight completely destroys him with his fists. A few questions about the episode that I have. That was pretty much the end of it. Um, is his mom real? He calls his mom and leaves messages a few times over the course of the episode, but he only leaves messages, doesn't actually speak to her. Also, he apparently receives a postcard from her, but then we see later in the episode, the postcard is sold from the gift shop he works at. Is Mark writing him postcards pretending to be his mom? Because that's super depressing. <laughs> uh, what I am also curious about is how many levels we are seeing here. What's real and what isn't. How much of this takes place in Stephen's head? How many levels of personalities are there taking up in his blackouts? Uh, for example, when he is there telling the little girl about his Egyptian, about the Egyptian afterlife in the museum, how only the worthiest could pass through the field of reeds, she asks him if it sucked when he was rejected from the field of reeds. That is not some quirky kid moment. That is some kind of dream reality breaking moment. Uh, also, nobody gets his name right through like the entire episode, and when he runs through that field that he wakes up in with the castle, it is covered in red poppies. We even see perspective-wise from the red poppies point of view. Um, red po I don't know if you're aware. <laughs> have, you have you ever seen Alice, not Alice in Wonderland, The Wizard of Oz, but red poppies traditionally symbolize sleep. There were a lot of fucking red poppies in that scene. I just can't get over so many red poppies. I feel like that has to be more symbolism. There is another theory. What if the three versions of the character that we're seeing are not different personalities, but are instead different multiversal versions of the hero converging on Earth in one body? That's a pretty good theory. Based on where the greater MCU is and what the patterns of translations from comic to MCU have been, I can definitely see that happening. The only d drawback would be it would probably make people a little bit upset that he doesn't have the mental health issues to shine that light on because I have heard from probably a dozen people, no joke by now, that they are really looking forward to seeing how um, the MCU handles his DID and multiple personalities and everything like that. So I think making them multiversal... Um, converging on one body would take away that and I, I think that those people who want that representation of mental health would not like that. I, I, I totally understand why they would be upset with that as well. It's understandable. And so we have deity appearances in this episode. Of course, the other groups of Egyptian gods are called the Ianad. Uh, we have Tawaret, who appears in the episode as uh, a, 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 a stuffed gift shop pluffy, plushy. Uh, she is the hippo goddess, as Stephen calls her. You have, of course, Amut or Amit, who is the crocodile-headed goddess who usually works under Ma'at, the god of truth and justice. Um, she is apparently 
the entity behind whatever Hera was doing, testing people's souls. Amit has the head of a crocodile, the front body of a lion, the bottom half of a hippopotamus, and her anthropomorphic depiction is meant to signify that humans cannot hope to run from her judgment. Um, if you're wondering about the hippopotamus side of that, hippopotamuses are dangerous as hell. They can kill you super easily, so that checks out with Egypt at the time. Khonshu, of course, we do see on several occasions, and we hear him speak even more, but no other Egyptian god so far. From the credits, they do say they do credit Doug Munch and Don Perlman for creating Moon Knight. They have Alex Ross, Doug Braithwaite, and Jim Kruger as the Universe X uh, Mummy Knight Moon Knight costume. They have Chris Wagner, or sorry, Chris Warner and Alan Zelenetz as co-creators of Arthur Harrow. Bill Sinkovich, of course, as longtime Moon Knight creator and creator in the Marvel Universe and of Khonshu in the Marvel Universe. Jeff Lemire and Greg Smallwood, who were the creative team behind the influential 2016 Moon Knight series. Greg Horitz and Jerome Opeña, who were the creative team behind Vengeance of the Moon Knight in 2009. And finally, Declan Shelby, co-creator of the Mr. Knight series um, and, the, and the design that Khonshu uses in the show now. One thing I think is very interesting is they did not credit writer Warren Ellis with that suit's design. Um... Part of me thinks because he probably had very little, if anything, to do with that suit's design as the writer. And the other part of me is laughing my ass off at his dumb face, which I don't even know what it looks like, but his dumb face because he got himself into massive trouble and will probably never have a job in the comics community again for having a history of um, mistreating women, <laughs> specifically women who are also in the industry. So fuck him. <laughs> All that credit goes directly to Declan Shelby. Of course, there is a new episode of Moon Knight today, the 6th. It's a Wednesday. Um, I've already seen some spoilers that I did not mean to see about that, but life goes on. Uh, so enjoy that, and we'll talk about that on the next episode 58 coming Monday. The last thing I'm going to talk about today is the new episodes of Young Justice that premiered last Thursday on HBO Max. This was episodes 14, 15, and 16, titled Nautical Twilight, Ebb Tide, and Emergency Dive, respectively. Starting off with episode 14, we have Nightwing and Aqualad, who are going around telling everybody about Superboy's death and going through the appropriate steps of what to do after his death. They talk about the deaths of Tula and Wally, vaguely recapping on the two characters. Aquaman, as he is now, I call him Aqualad, I was wrong about that, uh, led the Justice League recently through Connor's death. Dick suggests Calder take a break before he breaks, but Calder has his own work to do and, of course, declines. Meanwhile, Ocean Master has some kind of his own plan going on, and at the important Atlantis meeting thing, Mera is introduced as basically the head of magic underwater, which is cool. I forgot in this, in this reality, Mera is married to Orin, who is the brother of Orm, Arthur is not really a thing, as far as I remember. Um, I could be wrong with that. I just don't re quite recall. But that's that's Mera is married to Orin, who is the brother of Orm. It's a little bit different than it is in the comics. Um, 
that night, so we have Wind, who is Calder's boyfriend. He takes one of the visiting diplomats out on a night on the town, running into a fourth diplomat, and then the shark one who seems to hate all of them. Halo, the being living in Gabriel's body, more or less, uh, goes to Gabriel, Gabriel's, I said Gabriel, Gabriel's mother, um, and says that since Islam had answers for Gabriel, maybe it will for her as well. The mother agrees to help. She explains that um, a bit about the hijab, how Muslim women have different reasons to wear them or not wear them. She explains her reasons for wearing one, comparing it to uh, the superhero symbols that the capes wear. She also says when she wears the hijab, she hopes people will look past traditional beauty standards and instead see the woman that she is inside. She says many Muslim girls start wearing it for a tradition or to copy family before they decide if or why it matters to them to continue wearing it. When she burns her hand, Halo heals it. Later, they talk about Granny Goodness, who called herself a god, so they discuss who God is. In the end, she talks about deciding a gender. She doesn't really- she and her doesn't really fit. She thinks maybe they or them would be better, a non-binary gender, because they are a combination of Motherbox and Gabrielle. Then, Connor dreams of Megan, then wakes. What? He calls out for her mentally and sees that their link is severed. He is blue. He sees a ghostly form of the Legion of Superheroes member who was in the same kind of area that he was when the bomb went off. Uh, and he tries to touch her, but his hand passes through. They have no heat signatures, but he can feel his heartbeat, so he doesn't think that they're dead. He goes through some thinking and learns that if he believes the girl is solid, then he can touch her. Um, so he picks her up and looks around and he's seeing that they're in some kind of crazy oil slick colored universe, um, which looks a lot like the dark dimension, honestly. He decides to refer to her as ghosty. She's still unconscious. Uh, and he says, I know I suck at naming things, which is super accurate. And in infrared, Connor can see a heat trail coming from something in the distance. So he follows it. Episode 15, Ebb Tide. The other Legion members approach, um approach Kent and ask what uh, they tell him that they know he's Superman and they're asking him for help. They meet Superman and tell him that they failed in saving Connor and now they're stranded there after losing their friend in the same explosion. The bioship has been helping them get around in the meantime. They tell Superman that he has to take Connor's place at a key moment in history at Happy Harbor 10 years from today. Then Black Lightning summons him to the Taj Mahal for, to, to face a global mystic crisis. The Legion members, after that, don't see a change in their own future, so they know that he fails and approach Kid Flash next. Connor hasn't gone anywhere following the heat trail until a monster thing attacks him and wounds him severely. The fight continues and generally goes quite poorly. At last, he discovers the creature likes his rage, that's what he's attracted to, and he goes to his happy place. Memories of him, Magan, Bioship, their wolf dog, together. And after thinking of this, the creature goes away. In Atlantis, there is a prophecy that Mera and Orin are trying to figure out who a legendary Atlantean, or who the legendary Atlantean prophecy is about. Calder, his boyfriend, and the new girl who is visiting, uh, they gather to watch as there is some kind of ring of fire that goes down underwater. Mera comes and she's trying to fight it. Uh, and they spot the Lord of Chaos from the first half of the season or something leaving through Dr. Fake's Ankh symbol. It's fairly complicated stuff. Honestly, my biggest critique of this season is that there's too much going on. There's way too much going on. Um, the fiery waters are sending out a red fluid that kills anything it touches, so Orn sends all sea life away. Orm 
watches as Oren saves the bubbler whale dude from, they call him that, they call him like blubber, um, the blubber whale dude from the expanding red. Uh, then Orm comes out to help, but really just to look like a hero, and he steps in to help Mera with her construct. They still struggle until a third magic user shows up to help, and the prophecy of the true king starts to be spoken out loud at his appearance. When the flames are beat, Orn attacks Mera and Kaldur, of course, as they knew he would, who are then saved by that third figure, the new person, who then takes up the, tr the trident. He turns out to be Arion, the founder of Atlantis from 10,000, oh sorry, 12,000 years ago. In his world, words, he is the failure of Atlantis. The last scene in the end was something about Vandal Savage and some scheme that he's cooking up, unsurprisingly. Episode 16, Emergency Dive. McGann is closing up Connor's affairs on Earth. She says she has her good days and her bad days. She hasn't seen Gar, who's left his TV show and The Outsiders, so they think that she should go visit him. She does, and Gar is clearly upset. He's been self-medicating, as he says. He goes through the list of people that he's lost and tells her that he can get through this on his own way. In his own way. Later, she comes back with the group for an intervention. They include Mr. Robot, Blue Beetle, Wonder Girl, and a few others that I generally don't know who they were. Mera and the king do some tests to see if Arion is in fact who he says he is. They don't have a solid answer, except that it is more than likely him. His crown was lost when Atlantis was sunk, which is part of the prophecy now. Arion's kingdom sank 12,000 years ago, so those ruins are likely too far gone to search. Even though the people cheer his name, Arion does not want to be a part of the public eye. Meanwhile, rulers, rulers, riots start against other rulers in favor of Arion, who the people see as their true king. Um, and you get, there's, there's this fish boy dude whose name I don't remember, but he's apparently in a thruple. Um, one of the ambassadors who was pregnant is apparently pregnant with his child and or this other Atlantean's child, and they all kiss each other. Um, and that is when I realized that there are probably people mad about the show getting woke, but I'm I'm not sure if you can call a thruple woke, just open-minded. <laughs> Meanwhile, Calder and his boyfriend are arguing about how much he's working, and um, they're this just not looking good. In the end of the episode, Connor and Megan, he's imagining her there, helping him, he's imagining Megan there, helping him along with encouragement as he hops from floating oil slick to floating oil slick. Uh, trying to figure out where he is. He then runs into Wally, who you might remember died previously. Uh, Wally is not phased by any of this. He thinks that they're in purgatory and have to prove themselves worthy. Later on, he hallucinates Superman and an evil version of himself killing Superman. So clearly Connor has some mental issues that he's going to have to face before he leaves purgatory. Oh, and that wraps up what we've got for today. Um... The next episode is going to be Monday, and I'm also planning on having the Ileana special coming out the week of the 11th. That's going to be covering uh, Ileana Rasputin, aka Magic, um, and a little bit of Madeline Pryor, aka the Goblin Queen, because she's going to be relevant in what's coming up for Magic as well. The comic that, that is in uh, Preface 2 is New Mutants number 25, which is coming out, I believe, on the 27th of the month. So you'll have a little bit of time to go over the podcast, listen to stuff about magic, get a nice 
view of her character before uh, reading what is supposed to be her new era for magic fans, as Marvel themselves are saying, coming in New Mutants 25 on the 27th. Other than that, I just have the regular uh, Monday episode coming on the 11th with any luck. Um, And that's what we've got planned coming up. Thank you for listening to this episode or whatever portions of it that you listen to. As always, I had mentioned my socials in the beginning. You can find me online, Anna with the comics on Instagram, Savage She Geek on Twitter, sensationalshegeek.weebly.com is my website. Uh, and then you have my Patreon, Sensa- Sensational She Geek, uh, my YouTube, Sensational She Geek, uh, the Redbubble, She Geek Shop. Uh, it's, it's all there. And don't forget... Don't forget to check out the Oatmeal comic about Gene Roddenberry. Um, Really, really tugs at my heartstrings for some dumb reason. It's so lame and emotional. I just can't not tear up at it. I hate it. I love it. Um, (laughs) So definitely check that out. I'll have that linked in uh, the description there at the bottom. So check that out. Have a really fantastic week. It is hot where I am. So hydrate, hippies. And get sweaty. Have a great week.